0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me today is Tim Walton of the Hudson Institute Think Tank, who is, along with Brian Clark, the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology, the co-authors of the report, Resilient Aerial Refueling, Safeguarding the U.S. Military's Global Reach. That makes the case that aerial refueling should be the U.S. military's top modernization priority, a view that is shared not only by the U.S. Air Force, but by pretty much any strategic planner. Tim, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Vago. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure and certainly a, a great report, a number of series of uh, great things that you guys have been doing there. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, Tim, uh, a lot to discuss. You guys lay out uh, for uh, the audience uh, a very, very important topic that unfortunately gets lost uh, in the desire for bombers or pointy-nosed airplanes or NGAD. Uh, and without the gas, you basically don't go anywhere. Uh, and I think that people have a tendency of, of overlooking the, the fundamental importance, not just of the refueling fleet, but indeed the mobility fleet uh, overall, as these airplanes are also um, the vital cargo carriers uh, globally with the U.S. Air, Air, Air Force operating, uh, actually one of the largest type series uh, air fleets in the world with some 396 KC-135 or 707 sized airplanes. Give us, give us, start us off with the key takeaways of the report.
1: Thank you again for having me on, Fago. My colleague and, and boss Brian Clark and I worked on this study, but it was also the product of a series of consultations we did with others in the aerospace and defense community, and we're really grateful for all of their inputs into the study. In short, we found as we looked at U.S. aerial refueling enterprise that it's one of the United States' greatest strategic strengths. Uh, it allows U.S to deploy globally. Um, And it's an advantage that no other country really has at this level of skill, as does the United States. But moving forward, unless we make some significant changes, it threatens to become a a weakness. Uh, Aerial refueling can be increasingly uh, contested by China in particular. The aerial refueling force and enterprise faces a number of challenges regarding its age and cost. And this is going to make it difficult to modernize the force moving forward in the, in the ways we need. So as we looked at available options to en- enhance the force, we found that it's going to be necessary for the Department of Defense to commit itself to some decisive cross-portfolio trades that look at necessary improvements in tankers, but also other areas such as surface infrastructure and command control and communications to ensure that we can have the aerial refueling architecture that we need to enable new operational concepts and deter and hopefully defeat aggression if necessary.
0: Uh, the backbone of the tanker force is the KC-135, uh, obviously much upgraded airplane since it originally went into service under the Eisenhower administration. We bought 800 of them in a very, very short period of time. The newest one was delivered in the early 1960s. Uh, and many people don't recognize actually the 707 jetliner is a derivative of the KC-135, not the other way uh, around. The KC-10 is no spring chicken either. Uh, And these aircraft have tremendous and have had tremendous utilization rates uh, on them, especially uh, in the last three decades uh, with the war on terror and American global operations. Walk us through the condition of the tanker force as we find it now.
1: I think the first key feature is that it's old (laughs) as you were hinting. Uh, The average age of the tanker fleet uh, is about 52 years old in the US Air Force. Um, The KC-10 fleet, which is uh, younger, um, is retiring in in the coming years. Uh, But the KC-135 fleet, that is the bulk of our aerial refueling uh, force and will continue to be so well into the 2030s and and will likely be resident in the force into the 2040s. Due to its age, it's facing real readiness challenges and in particular also cost growth. Um, There's been an exhibited 3% real cost growth per year in the flying hour of the KC-135R fleet. And although a number of steps are being taken to try to temper some of those costs moving forward, overall, having a very old fleet um, is becoming increasingly expensive to operate. The other shift that's taking place in the condition of the force is that the aerial refueling fleet has gotten smaller. So it's about 20% smaller than it was at the end of the Cold War. And this smaller, old, expensive to operate fleet um, is becoming challenging to operate in support of the, the, num- the regular peacetime or competition phase demands that the force has. And if we were to face, I think, a major high-end contingency, we would likely face capacity gaps um, to be able to address those.
0: Um, I should point out, right? I mean, at that time, uh, the tanker force was particularly uh, important uh, to support long range bomber missions, right? And ensure that alert forces stayed aloft and things like that, right? I mean, so you could, you could understand the Air Force's argument that in the post Cold War uh, era, we, we needed fewer uh, airplanes. Um, l- let's talk about, I want to go to two things, right? I mean, how many airplanes and of what type and composition, because you guys did some very nice empirical work on that. What are the threats the tanker force faces, right? We've had a tendency of operating, especially in the last three decades, with a degree of impunity, right, that we can park these almost anywhere, uh, very people, a few people could, could get to them in order to hold them at risk, uh, where we could set up tanker orbits, whereas that's going to become something that's far, far more challenging, especially if we do it in the Pacific. And I want to get to the infrastructure questions as well. But what are some of the threats that the tanker force faces today and will face, say, in the next 10, 15 years that it hasn't faced in the past uh, three decades or more.
1: They are pretty severe threats. um, And it's also taking place during a period of time where the joint force is relying more on aerial refueling, I would say. Um, So for instance, as opposed to the Cold War period, our Air Force operates in a more expeditionary fashion where aircraft get surged forward as opposed to being a larger portion of the force being based forward. So that's more reliant on aerial refueling. And then there's a whole host of different joint force and service concepts that are emphasizing distribution and dynamic operations that rely on aerial refueling. These demands though, are taking place amidst a period of time of growing threats, the the greatest threat is the threat tankers face on the ground. So PLA in particular strike capacity that can target air bases and destroy aircraft and their support infrastructure on the ground at increasingly long ranges and then at sort of very large salvo sizes. Um, in the past, PLA could mount threats in, in the order of small numbers to scores of missiles or bombs that could be delivered against uh, air bases. We're now facing threats of hundreds to thousands of missiles at throughout the first and second island chains. So it's a very significant threat in the ground. We're also seeing, though, in the air that the PLA is being capable of targeting aircraft with long-range kill chains that are being uh capable of being executed through uh, improved sensing like the KJ 500 airborne early warning aircraft that can cue other aircraft, including low observable fighters, such as the J-20 that can super cruise with very long range missiles to long distances and in a conflict, perhaps interdict tankers. And even if they don't directly destroy the tankers, uh, they can impose what we call in the report virtual attrition, which is the operational dislocation that's forced by having your operations change. So for example, if tankers have to stand back further from a preferred aerial refueling control point where they would give fuel to a fighter, for instance, that makes it so that you need more fighters to be able to sustain that combat air patrol. Or if, as another example, if tankers need to be based at a more distant location to avoid the strike threat, that means that those tankers will have less fuel to be able to provide to other receiver aircraft in the area of interest. So these real and virtual attrition threats are are now very significant. And in the past, studies like the mobility capabilities requirements study didn't really account for attrition. Moving forward, the the significant threat of attrition can make it so that it's going to be difficult to execute some of our preferred um, concepts of operation and be able to be successful in, I think, some of our more stressing campaigns.
0: I want to get to uh, the force Uh, that the Air Force needs and everybody ultimately wants more airplanes. Uh, And at the same time, what each of those airplanes need to do, right? I mean, at this point, the tanker force, the Air Force has used 455 uh, as the number. Um, Everybody would like more. Um, what's, What's the case for more airplanes and what are the capabilities that we need this force to do? Because we can get into the various programs in a minute because I'd like you to explain them. But I mean, as you guys have looked at this, what are the numbers? Because each of these airplanes do different things and carry different kinds of gas, different amounts of gas and different cargo, right? Walk us through numbers and sort of capability, ultimately, that we need out of this tanker force, given where we are going to be 10 years from now, in terms of numbers of aircraft, manned, unmanned, as well as operating on the distant, you know, in the Western Pacific. The U.S. Transportation
1: Command puts out a study called the Mobility Capabilities Requirements Study. That's DOD's assessment of the number of strategic um, sea lift, air mobility, aerial refueling, surface deployment, distribution, et cetera, logistics capabilities that the force needs. That requirement has been for a period of time, 479 tankers. Uh, Right now, there are about 470 tankers in the fleet, uh, which is less than the requirement. Um, There are some concepts to, I think, reduce the force further to to 455 tankers uh, as KC-10s, and as some KC-135s are are retired from the force, that's obviously a question of capacity readiness capability that the Air Force is, I think, trying to balance right now, given budgets. Um, But I think the historical record has suggested that reducing the size of the force would incur significant risk. We, in our study, estimated that in order to defeat a great power, if we were using previous estimates of being able to defeat a regional adversary... And complete some other missions, you would probably need around 479 tankers. Um, If we're facing a more potent adversary like China, that number is likely even greater, especially as as we take into account attrition. So I think maintaining the number of tankers in the force is going to be important moving forward. The mix of tankers is also critical. As you were pointing out, the US Air Force is now retiring the KC-10 from the force. And the KC-10 is a very large tanker that could carry 356,000 pounds of fuel and was very capable at providing high capacity offload at range. As that aircraft is retired from the force and as the KC-46s and their crews are slowly integrated into the force, we're likely to see a gap um, in the coming four or five years where there's going to be a 6% or so drop in the aggregate fuel capacity of the force. So that's problematic. More significantly, the Air Force needs to, I think, recapitalize the force more quickly than it's doing today. And so the, the main options moving forward are the, I think, continuing to execute the KCX program, which is now being uh, performed by Boeing through the KC-46A aircraft. There is now a upcoming uh, question of a KCY competition as well, and, and the two leading contenders seem to be the... Boeing KC-46 again, which would be sort of an incumbent aircraft provider where they would continue delivering that aircraft or a modification of it, and the Lockheed Martin next generation tanker, which is a variant of the Airbus A330 uh, MRTT. Uh, And they've decided to make some changes to to be able to load about 25,000 more pounds of fuel. Those are, I I would say, the the primary options for the KCY force. And, And we could talk about that a little bit more if you'd like, and then... Thinking towards the future, uh, there are other options for a future tanker design, KCZ or um, KZ. And there are, I think, lots of questions regarding whether that should be a very low observable tanker or not, small, large. And and we explored that trade space and concluded that in general, it likely should be a medium-sized tanker and doesn't really need to be highly low observable. So I think there are viable options to start spending money in the 2020s to be able to deliver that KZ aircraft in the early
0: 2030s and obviously uh the a330 base tanker uh that was uh the northrop grumman uh they had originally been partnered with northrop grumman indeed won the tanker competition once and then it was undone competed again and, and boeing ended up winning it um lockheed obviously has long wanted to partner with airbus uh and obviously there have been a couple of stories uh out uh about um you know uh, you know, Airbus membership in in the Aerospace Industries Association, and and how Lockheed, among other companies, uh, may have uh, forestalled for that. Um, what? Why not have more and simply more capable aircraft? Right. I mean, why? What? What is the downside of of doing that? Because we we have the mixed fleet we have now for a variety of reasons, in part because. You know, we wanted a more capable tanker, and we were trying to help McDonnell Douglas, and we bought those airplanes. Uh, and eventually, the version that we bought of those airplanes became the MD-11, right, uh, with the central landing gear and a couple of other features. I mean, why why would we want medium tankers? Why wouldn't we want a bigger fleet of simply more capable aircraft that can just carry more gas?
1: That, that's a good question. Now, my remark on the, on the medium tanker was really focused on the KZ. Uh, competition, sort of that future tanker type competition, but in, in terms of the KCY or bridge tanker um, competition, that that seems to be coming up. Um, each aircraft, I'd say, has its sort of advantages and disadvantages. Um, the LMXT provides more offload capacity than the KC forty six, so it can um, lift about two hundred sixty eight thousand pounds of fuel as around, as opposed to two hundred eleven thousand pounds for the KC forty six, or at least the KC forty six A variant. So it can give more fuel, uh, which allows it to support missions with fewer aircraft, all all things being equal and could save some operating costs on some missions during peacetime. And then during a conflict, being able to support some tracks or some offloads with fewer aircraft can reduce the amount of complexity that it takes to to execute different operations. So I think that's all very valuable. Additionally, like that KC-10 that's being retired, the LMXT is very good at delivering long-range, high-capacity offloads of fuel to larger aircraft, such as transports or bombers operating from distant airfields, which is what we're likely to see throughout the Indo-Pacific. The the KC-46, which is smaller than the the, uh, LMXT, though, also has some of its advantages. So the KC-46, it's smaller, and and that means that it has a generally higher fuel offload to ramp space ratio. And what that means is that The amount of fuel that it could deliver divided by the amount of space it takes up on a ramp means that for every given airfield, you can generally speaking fit more KC-46s into that airfield than you can LMXT. Um, And in some cases that means that you could deliver actually more total fuel capacity in the air um, than an LMXT. It may may also allow you to have greater temporal and geographic distribution of those booms than you could with an LMXT. The cost, though, is that you're going to need more associated ground and air personnel to make that possible. Um, I'd say the, the final benefit of the KC-46 is that current estimates suggest that it's likely cost less to procure, um, so around $190, dollars million, as opposed to maybe $220, $25 million for the LMXT. And given that the Air Force has already bought the KC-46, it could avoid incurring some costs by uh, buying more KC-46s and increasing tanker fleet commonality. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that regardless of what direction the Air Force goes in, in terms of tankers, it's going to, I think, have to harden some of these planned and programmed tankers and then current tankers in the force, uh, including the KC-135, because all tankers moving forward, if they're going to be operating at the edge of contested environments, will need to have enhanced self-defense capabilities to be able to, at the very least, increase the salvo sizes that enemies are going to need to mount. To defeat those aerial refueling aircraft,
0: um, I uh, should point out that that's one of the reasons why uh, the US uh, uh, Air Force is actually considering what to do and whether or not just to do, you know, instead of doing a bridge tanker, just do the KC 46 uh, as a buy, especially since Boeing has eaten billions of dollars in development costs. Uh, on those airplanes. Uh, I want to get to uh, least uh, tanker services in a minute because a lot of commercial operators would tell you, look, there is an airline in the world that's paying list price for these airplanes. uh, And it's absurd for these airplanes to cost what they cost uh, ultimately, Mm -hmm. um, given uh, that they are uh, somewhat more available on on the global market. Um, One of the important elements of this, uh, uh, Tim, is speed. I mean, we are recapitalizing... When we initially set up this tanker force, we did it in a few short years where we were buying a lot of airplanes every year, uh, just like we were buying a lot of B-52s every year. And now we, we can't even re-engine, re-engine them at the rate that we were buying them brand new, right? We're now recapitalizing it about, you know, one a month, little more than a one a month, uh, let's say. What do we need to do in terms of being able to recapitalize this force and do it more quickly than whatever the plan? I mean, right now, AOAs, you know what I mean. I mean, we started the KC, mm-hmm. you know, the KC one thirty five replacement program more than two decades ago, and we're still slogging away at it and don't have IOC airplanes. Um, you know what what is what is the different mental model we need to try to do this? And is there room? Uh, you know, our mutual friend uh, Todd Harrison left CSIS and joined Meta Aerospace, a very, very innovative company that's doing um, refueling and a number of other uh, very important capabilities as a service. Uh, and, you know, we've got Omega uh, in that uh, business as well. I mean, you know, and what's the role for maybe commercial providers to try to get us and bridge us or just be a fundamental part of the fabric going forward?
1: Uh, great question, vago the, In terms of the first, uh, in terms of I think recapitalizing the force more quickly. Yeah,
0: let's let's go with the speedier recapitalization, and then let's talk about uh, the the role of of um, you know pr- service providers, if you will.
1: Perfect. So, so in terms of I think a speedier recapitalization on the KCY option, U.S. Air Force has been buying aircraft at rates of twelve to fifteen aircraft KC forty sixes per year. So if... Regardless of whether a KC46 or an LMXT is selected, I think it's going to be essential to maintain at the very least a rate of 12 per year and ideally faster than that. Moving forward though, I'd argue sort of a, a complementary and parallel path to the KCY recapitalization is spending R&D money in the 2020s to start to re- refine technologies and mature designs for the future KZ. Um, because if a future KZ is medium size, so smaller than a KC 135, perhaps in terms of the amount of ramp space it takes up, um, and can maybe have a comparable level of offload to aircraft such as the KC 46, or maybe even more, depending on, on the design of the aircraft, it can make it so that you could be procuring aircraft at 15 to 18 tankers per year. Because all things being equal, it's going to be a, um, slightly smaller aircraft, lower cost. And, and that will allow you to, over time, decrease the age of the KC-135 fleet and make it so that you're shifting money from operations and support and sustainment towards more procurement, RGT&E, that we're going to need moving forward. contractor and contractor operated aerial refueling is also another lever, I think, that's available to the Air Force. Uh, the U.S. Navy uh, has been contracting um, aerial refueling support through Omega, as you mentioned, for a number of years. Now, Meta Aerospace is another entrant into that market and has uh, four of its own KC-135s. And I think what's going to be necessary is shifting sort of the, the paradigm from a more or less one size or one type fits all approach, where we need a government aerial refueling aircraft to support all types of missions to an approach where, maybe there's uh, an appropriate level of differentiation in the marketplace. So there, there are likely, I think, some missions, in particular, uh, refueling a foreign military sales aircraft or direct commercial sales aircraft that are getting exported or training of foreign aircraft, and then some training of U.S. aircraft where uh, a commercial uh, aircraft or a retired government aircraft that's being used by a commercial operator that is only focused on the narrow mission set and doesn't need to train for sort of all the potential missions that could take place and isn't going to go into a contested environment, that provider might be able to support that uh, those missions at sort of modest and maybe lower costs than government providers. So that allows you to, I think, address some of the capacity gaps moving forward. To date, some of the concerns on the part of the Air Force, and which is, I think, the reasons why Congress commissioned a study. Uh, that the Air Force is conducting on contractor owned contractor operated aerial refueling is whether some of these contractor aerial refueling would take um, ONS funding away from the government fleet. And so you would be basically taking money from the government tankers, which probably need more money already to, to enhance the readiness to give it to contractor uh, and contractor operated aerial refueling. I think with greater differentiation in the market, it will be easier to segment and see that we're going to sustain ONS funding for the government fleet and have them be able to focus on those government missions. But there's another segment where I think the commercial fleet will be able to address some of these missions that are either in in direct support of allies and partners or exports that don't directly compete with with government aerial refueling.
0: Um, How do we need to think about the infrastructure, right? We have a tendency of focusing on the airplanes themselves, but a little bit less on what, I mean, this is a massive amount of gas, uh, Tim, uh, and it has to be moved uh, seamlessly. The US Air Force prides itself on doing a terrific job in doing that. But ultimately, you also need to be getting fuel to where you need it Folks can't, as you noted, uh, stay on the ground as much as they'd like to stay. Right. So they've got to keep it moving in order not to become targeted. Um, And then, of course, in the air, uh, they have their own dangers they're going to face from J-20 and other kinds of aircraft. How do we need to be thinking about the infrastructure ecosystem uh, that supports these aircraft and supports them forward uh, at, at scale? we found that
1: enhancing the surface infrastructure is probably one of the the most valuable investments that the Department of Defense can make in the 2020s. Regardless of of what happens on the KCY competition or or future tanker competitions, uh, those aircraft probably won't start to enter into the force until the very end of the 2020s and early 2030s. So if we're concerned about something like the Davidson window or sort of other problems with China in the 2020s, we need to be spending more on airfields, ramp space, fuel stores, and fuel distribution to make it so that we can have a greater number of effective aircraft in the Indo-Pacific and and elsewhere. Now, we estimated in our study that there are only about a dozen Indo-Pacific airfields where U.S. forces would have sufficient political access and then sort of that right mix of conditions at the airfield to be able to support sustained tanker operations. So that makes it so that you can only support relatively few aircraft in the air And those air bases are vulnerable to attack. So moving forward, we contended that we need to spend more on the surface architecture, even if it comes at the cost of slightly reducing the rate of some of the tanker procurement, because it's going to yield a major increase in the number of tankers available. Um, Some of the specific investments we recommended are spending a bit more on additional runways, ramp space, hardened fuel stores, some over-the-shore fuel distribution capabilities, and then maritime tankers. So it's, it's about the maritime tankers that can transport 325,000 plus barrels each to support the aerial refueling tankers that are really essential. And so having that uh, interaction between military sea lift command and air mobility command is gonna be very valuable moving forward. And, and we found that if we make, if we spend about $633 million more per year on the surface infrastructure, by the end of the decade, we could probably increase the number of tankers we have in the theater by sixty-three percent. So it could be an enormous increase that takes place relatively quickly if we focus on, on the right investments.
0: Uh, alas, uh, there's there's the trick, isn't it, uh, Tim? The the right investments. Uh, you gotta you gotta you gotta spend money to make money, as the saying goes. Uh, you have to spend money to get capability. Um, very briefly, um, one last element, uh, and we've got about a minute left. Uh, last element of the r- report that I'd like to discuss is command and control. This notion of the smart tanker was or- originated by John Jumper, uh, a visionary air chief. Um, you know, We have these uh, platforms everywhere around the world. Our allies and partners are doing that. Uh, certainly, the Voyager has a relay capability, uh, an important relay capability uh, to be a node in a battle command uh, network. Uh, forward, um, how do we need to be thinking about command and control, both command and control and making the best out of the force that we have, but also then using them uh, as what could be extremely powerful nodes in a, in a future uh, resilient battle network?
1: I think there are incredible opportunities to better use tankers. Uh, the Air Force has been demonstrating some roll-on, roll-off capabilities to
0: be able to support
1: um, ABMS, Airborne Battle Management System and then also to serve as a communications relay. Um, It's not a new mission for tankers. Uh, We did a historical study and we found tankers were used as aerial relays going all the way back to the Vietnam War, but it's one where tankers could play an important role. We did note in the study also, I think it's important though, to not place too much of a reliance on tankers being the critical node for aerial relay, because anytime you're emitting with high power, even if you're using a low probability of interceptor detection data link, you make yourself more susceptible to detection. So we don't want to turn these transmitters of opportunity into targets of opportunity for the enemy. So I think it will be a a delicate balance for the Air Force to make some of the right investments um, in using tankers, but also identify what are other airborne relays that are low cost and attributable that they could field into the airspace, be they some UAVs or stratospheric balloons.
0: Tim, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Great work. I hope people uh, check it out and we shape our plans uh, accordingly. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Fago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.